Are you liking that tea? <laughs> it's so good. By tea, you mean chicken juice. Hot chicken juice. Chicken broth. Of course, drink whatever you want. But is it normal that people just drink chicken broth every day? I don't know. Did lots of people do that? I don't know. I've never had a just a cup of chicken broth before. It's like chicken noodle soup without the noodles. Oh, yeah. I, I understand what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but you're kind of eating the salty equivalent to me because you're having potato chips and chicken broth. <laughs> And I have black tea with a tea biscuit. Yeah. It's really kind of the same thing for different flavor profiles. Yeah. I Interesting. Like <laughs> <laughs> I like it a lot. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of I Love This, You Should Too. And we are members of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is locally grown and community supported. My name is Indy Tea Biscuit Randawa, and with me is my beautiful co-host, Samantha Hot Chicken Juice Randawa. Don't call me hot chicken juice. That's gross. <laughs> what are you drinking? Chicken broth. Okay. Chicken tea. <laughs> Chicken tea. Well, today we are going to be talking all about Ed Wood. Not just the person Ed Wood, but the 1994 Tim Burton film Ed Wood. It was my pick. So it's something that Samantha has never seen, something that I loved growing up, and we're going to see if it still holds up. But first, let's thank our first sponsor of the episode, and that is the Well-Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. It explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong and vibrant city. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. If you want to hear more, you can visit them at thewellendowedpodcast.com, or you can listen to their podcast wherever you are listening to us right now. So check them out. All right, are you ready for some Ed Wood talk? Yeah. Because you've been kind of steeped in the 1950s, um, not by any choice of your own, <laughs> but I got you to watch The Day the Earth Stood Still, which you liked. I liked it. We did The Iron Giant, which is a kind of homage to those 50s sci-fis and takes place in the 50s, and you like that one as well. I like that one more than I liked The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, really? Okay. But now we are going to a filmmaker who made those types of uh, kind of schlocky sci-fi movies that are paid homage to by the Iron Giant with this 1994 film, Ed Wood, telling the true story of director Ed Wood. Yeah. So, Samantha. Yes. I love this movie. Did you? I liked it. I kind of felt that's where yeah. you were going. It was fun. It had its moments, but I don't think I can say that I loved it. What did you like about it? Like, I loved the like cast of characters. There's mm -hmm. a lot of really fun like individual personalities. I liked um, the costuming was fun. Mm -hmm. It was very of the time. And uh, I liked the idea of the storyline of this like filmmaker who has this like other side to him and he's like proudly wearing it out on the on the surface and this is something that's always hard to do but do you think there is anything that stopped you from going to that next level is there any shortcomings in this movie or is that something we'll just kind of explore through this conversation i don't think i can come up with something specific i think that's something that we'll have to 
talk about when we get to it. Because I, I loved this movie growing up, and I think I still do. But upon this rewatch, I realized that when I saw it, it was kind of the perfect time for me. It was probably when I was like 17, 18, 19, around then when I was really getting into filmmaking. And watching it then, of course I would love it. It is about filmmaking, and it is kind of about the type of filmmaking I did, that like low-budget type yeah. stuff. And it's about one artist's passion and not listening to anyone that was trying to tell him not to do that. So, of course, for a young, aspiring filmmaker, of course, now I'm a jaded, old, failed filmmaker. <laughs> but at the time, of course, it would make sense that I would love this movie. And... This character was uncompromising, or maybe not uncompromising, that's not the right word, because if you gave him the money, he would do whatever. Yeah. But he was still, in his own way, maybe um, true to himself, Yeah. regardless of, of what he was making. Yeah. He had a very good idea of who he was. He did, yeah. That's a, a very good way of putting it. I think my question for you, then, is... For someone who doesn't have that kind of background in filmmaking, not the same interest in the art of making film, just in a, like enjoying films, yeah, is it as interesting or do you feel like you lose something because a good part of the plot is, is about that passion? I agree that you kind of, I kind of lost something in the like filmmaking part. I mean, I've done community theater and like, I think that's kind of similar to doing like no budget movies. I think the whole like technicality of filmmaking might have gone over my head a little bit. And maybe that is one of the reasons why I didn't love it because I didn't, I wasn't like intimately knowledgeable about the subject matter. And I wonder, like with any movie, how much of an expert do you have to be? I feel like a good movie can overcome that. And I wonder why like certain things we feel like, oh, well, I don't know that thing, so I don't get it. Yeah. While something like um, a Marvel superhero movie, I don't know what it's like to be a billionaire within a futuristic iron suit, but everyone can fine is fine getting into that get into iron man yeah but then we can be like oh 50s movies like i don't understand that stuff so i won't wouldn't like that maybe it's because marvel movies are just so larger than life that you kind of are able to suspend reality a little bit easier than this kind of like livable situation mm -hmm. you don't find as much to relate to yeah. or maybe you feel like you don't when it's specific and more grounded almost yeah like this is almost too normal of a situation for me to be able to like suspend my reality and be like okay well what if i was a no budget filmmaker right whereas with iron man it's like okay well i'm obviously never gonna be iron man well not with that attitude <laughs> so it's a little easier for me to say like oh yeah i can totally get into this because it's not something that i'm ever gonna live that makes a lot of sense before we start breaking it down i just want to ask you what is this movie about? What is Ed Wood about? A filmmaker who likes women's clothing and creates films um, that aren't mainstream and might be like a little out there for regular Hollywood films. And also he has a like ragtag group of colleagues. Yeah, and I love that you included that at the end because I always thought of this movie as 
maybe a filmmaker's movie because that kind of seemed like the central idea to me in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, though, I find that the friendship, specifically that between Ed and Bella, I feel like that's the real driving force of the movie. It's yeah. less about the actual movies they're making and more about this kind of community of misfits that they have uh, kind of banded together to make those movies. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into the movie. I feel like we can talk a bit at the beginning, some context of the movie, Ed Wood. So uh, the 90s, Tim Burton, Johnny Depp. We'll probably talk a bit about them. Classic combination. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Uh, Like uh, Lugosi and Wood to a certain extent. Yeah. But then we'll also talk about, within the movie, the idea of filmmaking, how they present it there. I want to talk about Ed Wood, Bella Lugosi, their, maybe less about their real lives, but them in this movie, the performances. And then I think we could talk about that friendship, that group of characters, that Mm. family that they've created. Yeah. So let's start off with this film's director, Tim Burton, and a guy who probably sees a lot of himself in Ed Wood. And that's, I would imagine, what really drew him to this project. I could see that. Because Tim Burton, especially in his early stuff, he really feels like an outsider. He talks about that very openly, that he felt marginalized to a certain extent. And of course, when you're someone who still fits most of the majority things, you're allowed to be like weird and out there for one certain thing. I used to like Tim Burton. I like Tim Burton. I like Tim Burton's older movies. Yeah. <laughs> because this movie is kind of at the peak of what I liked from him. He started off with his Pee Wee movie, and then we covered Beetlejuice yes. on this podcast, which I love. Then in 89, he did that Batman movie, which came out when I was like four or five, and I was obsessed with it. (laughs) I remember seeing it in theaters. It might be the first movie I remember seeing in a theater. Oh, interesting. Then in 1990, he does Edward Scissorhands, which I also love. We talked about it on this podcast. You can go check that episode out. 92, he does Batman Returns. Uh, Not as successful, but still very successful. And there's a lot of really interesting stories about that, how essentially because his Happy Meal toys didn't sell as well, that's why he didn't get the third movie. Oh. it's It really came down to the toys is why he didn't get to do the next movie. That's a wild reason to yeah. not bring back a filmmaker. I think there's full documentaries about that, huh. or at least some podcasts. You can get into it. Did the toys suck or? Well, he wanted Danny DeVito as a grotesque penguin, right? And right. I thought it was great. But that's a hard toy to sell to children. True. That is what a lot of the issues were. That they wanted things to be more marketable as toys, and he wants them to be weird and off the wall because he's Tim Burton. Life. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, that didn't sell. Huh. Interesting. I get it. But also that's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. There is so many very, very interesting stories about Tim Burton movies that almost happened. Like his uh, Superman movie, and they did test shots and everything. Nick Cage was Superman. Oh. And I think Chris Rock is Jimmy Olsen. Um, who was Brainiac? It was someone cool. And the the artist sketch of what Brainiac would look like was essentially just um, like a triangle with a skull on top. It was all this really weird stuff. And all of these movies came very close to being made. Kevin Smith wrote the script for it. Oh, wow. And um, just never happened. But you can look up uh, 
pictures of Nick Cage as the Superman. <laughs> it's very interesting. And you'd say like, oh, that would never work. But people thought Mike Keaton as a Batman would never work as well. But we're not talking about that. Uh, then in 94, Ed Wood comes out. So he's coming off of two Batman movies. And Ed Wood was a hard movie for him to get made. Uh-huh. When they started doing makeup tests, they realized they couldn't make anything look like Bor- um, I almost said Boris Karloff, uh, Bela Lugosi. <laughs> right. And then they realized, like, oh, you know what it is? Nobody's ever seen Bela Lugosi in color. So then they said, we need to make this movie in black and white. And as soon as you uh-huh. say you're going to make something in black and white, your production company drops you. Because black and white movies don't do well. They didn't do well past, what, like 1960. Once you could do yeah. color. Yeah. You're instantly going to lose at least half of your audience. And that was definitely the case on this one. They chopped his budget to $18 million, And this movie only made uh, less than $6 million. So it was a huge flop. And this is $6 million. Wow. Yeah. And this is coming off of uh, the two Batmans, which combined for like $700 million or so. Wow. That's wild that that's such a drop. And when you say like, yeah, why wouldn't people go watch this movie? Well, they loved the movie Batman with superheroes. Why wouldn't they want to see this movie about a cross-dressing little known 50s director yeah. in black and white? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, yeah, because of the Unless things I, I just yeah. said. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> and he has an interesting career because that kind of is the end of it for me. Really? That's what I love. Those movies there, I feel like. Each one of them is amazing, brilliant in so many different ways. His next movie is Mars Attacks. Right. Which, did you ever see that? No. I remember the poster. It is also kind of an homage to 50 sci-fi because it is one of those, but with like a big budget. It is silly and weird and it's fine. It's good. It's not a bad movie. And then he does Sleepy Hollow, which again, I'm like, Okay, that's good. That had and, Christina Ricci in it, right? Yeah. At like peak Christina Ricci? Well, I think peak Christina Ricci is Casper, personally. But. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I mean Hollywood peak Christina okay. Ricci. Um, and then he does this kind of era where it's like, wouldn't it be cool if you saw this thing you already know, but with a fun Tim Burton twist on it? Right. And for like five movies, it was fun. Because you have Sleepy Hollow, Planet of the Apes was garbage, I didn't like that. A Big Fish, I think, was a very good movie. It's oh. like, what if a fairy tale, but not a specific one like all of his other ones would be, had a Tim Burton twist. And that was a lot of fun. Then you get Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, Sweeney Todd. And that's kind of the end of like me having fun with like what would a Tim Burton version of this world look like? Right. Because after that, it becomes tedious. And we know what a Tim Burton version of this would look like. We've seen it already. Yeah. And that's where we get things like Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows. I kind of liked the Alice in Wonderland. I absolutely hate it. But really? Yeah, I thought it was just terrible. What did you like about it? Um, I like the look of it. Because I feel like... The Disney-fied Alice in Wonderland is too, like, fluffy and nice. Mm-hmm. Whereas this story about this girl who's, like, going to a kingdom and is, like, basically being, like, hunted. And, uh, like, the growing and the shrinking and, like, those kinds of things were really cool to see from Tim Burton. I felt that that movie looked like someone who had 
hundreds of millions of dollars and was told to do their best Tim Burton impression, but still make it bright and silly. Right. And they tried to do that, but to me, it looked like a lot of current amateur photographers who were like, oh yeah, I want to take cosplay photos. And then they just do this ridiculous CG background that looks terrible, but it all looks absolutely the same as everyone else. Right. And that's what this looked like to me. While when you look at something like Edward Scissorhands, there are things that look like that. Mm. Like it is straight ripped off from a lot of uh, German expressionist films. But you can see his influence and he is combining that influence with what he sees his current world as when he had that like kind of pasteled suburbia. Right. And you can see him filtering our world or his perception of our world Mm -hmm. with what he wishes the world was or what he sees in those like German expressionist films. While when I see something like Alice in Wonderland, I see just like, here's a bunch of stuff and he's just throwing everything at the wall because he said, you loved it when I had these things before, love this. And I'm in the minority because that movie made a billion dollars. Sweeney Todd? No, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And to me, it looks like just terrible. It looks like just everything being thrown at it. And it doesn't have um, like a singular vision, which is kind of what I come to expect from Tim Burton in his previous stuff. Right. It just looks like someone doing a bad impression of him, but not realizing the depth of his influences are what drew people like me and I think a lot of his earlier fans Mm. into it they just think now like oh yeah fairy tale but dark and we get so many of those that is like a genre within itself now just dark takes on fairy tales there's so many of those and he kind of led the way on that in a lot of ways and it just seems so far removed from not just the artistic visual artistic sense but the idea that his characters also seemed to have um, a certain uh, amount of um, like wounded integrity to them. All of his characters in the past were these were these misfits. Your um, Pee Wees and Batman and Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood. They were these people that are not a part of their society and they know it and they were treated with such respect and dignity from Tim Burton that that was the grounding force of all of this fantastic stuff going around it. Right. But then you get down to Alice in Wonderland and you're like, hey, how about a new wig for Johnny Depp? And like, what is he doing? He just has like wacky eyes and they're... I don't like any of those characters. I don't respect any of those characters. And I don't feel that the movies respected them as anything more than a caricature. Right. And that's why I think they're not successful. Did that make sense? I kind of just said a bunch of stuff off the top of my head. I never really (laughs) thought about it. But I think that's why those later ones don't work for me. Okay. It makes sense. Like, did you like Alice? Is she a character? You're like, wow, she was well done. Or you were like, yeah, she was fine. I think as a whole, I liked it. Mm Mm-hmm. I also think I don't think about movies as hard as you do. (laughs) I think I just can't like a movie if I don't like any character. Right. And you can like hate a character, but that's eliciting a response. I just was kind of mildly annoyed by all of the characters. Mm. And then Dark Shadows, terrible, terrible piece of garbage. 
Um, Big Eyes, you'd think I'd like that one because that kind of is him going back to older stuff. I thought it was very poorly done. And then his last two, the um, the adaption of uh, The Home for Peculiar Children and Dumbo. So everything he does is an adapted work. Right. I remember Dumbo being terrifying to look at. I didn't see it. I actually it. want to see Dumbo because I would like it to looks see like it. it's scary enough that it might be interesting. I'd like to see it, but I remember seeing all the like press shots and like I think I saw a trailer and that was one of the scariest animals I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> all right, we should check out Dumbo. I, I want to watch okay. that one. But uh, all that being said, his later stuff just kills in the box office. So I am, if you just go by a... Uh, capitalist measurements i'm objectively wrong because <laughs> i think ed wood is in his top three movies and it made six million dollars and i think alice in wonderland is the worst maybe overall and it made a billion dollars <laughs> yeah so what do i know what do you dark know? shadows made 250 million dollars that's wild it's ridiculous um but what about frank and weenie so frank and weenie i like <laughs> I had actually seen the old Franken. Frankenweenie is a remake okay. of his own work. Oh. So I had seen the old one, which I liked, and then the new one, I was like, well, it was, it was fun, I guess. Hmm. I just remember Frankenweenie looked super cute. Yeah. There's um, a short I have, the original Frankenweenie, which oh. is a live action and is about a boy whose dog dies and he brings it back to life. Huh. That was good. It's a heartwarming tale. He also has this short called Vincent, which is also very autobiographical about a misfit boy who just wants to be like Vincent Price. Oh. And that is the most clear parallel, I think, between Tim Burton and Ed Wood, because Ed Wood grew up idolizing Bella Lugosi, meets him late in Bella's life, and then puts him in his movies, and then he dies, and that has a lasting effect on it. Right. In Tim Burton's case, he grew up and made a movie about how much he wanted to be like Vincent Price. Then he does get to work with Vincent Price. Uh, he narrates the short Vincent, and he is in Edward Scissorhands. Right. A small role because he died, I think, during production or shortly oh, after production. That's sad. I don't remember, but listen to our Edward Scissorhands episode because we talk about it there. And he got to work with his hero, and you'd think that they were going to have this lasting relationship of how they would work on things together, but it never got a chance to happen because of Vincent Price's passing. That's so sad. It really is. But yeah, I can see that parallel. And then also, both of them, Ed Wood and Tim Burton, have this recurring cast of characters. Right. With Tim Burton, it's usually whoever he's dating or married to at the time. Uh, in this one, Lisa Marie, who plays Vampira and then would be back in Mars Attacks. They were together. Uh. Helena Bottom Carter later on. I forget who it was earlier than that. But yeah, he just puts in his girlfriends a lot. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, it is. But uh, maybe his greatest relationship of all, of course, is that with Johnny Depp. Maybe that's the true love story. I think it is, although now they, they it's been a while since they've made something together, though. Yeah. But at this time, they had done Edward Scissorhands together, and then they did Ed Wood. They would go back to work on Sleepy Hollow, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Did he voice Corpse Bride? Maybe he did that, too. But also, for sure, Sweeney Todd and uh, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, and Dark Shadows. And I haven't seen the newest ones to know if he's in there. Were you a big Johnny Depp fan? Yeah, I like Johnny Depp. In which era? 
Um, I think I first experienced him probably in Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, rough. <laughs> I like him, though. I think he's fun. I never knew him as the, like, Edward Scissorhands or Edward Johnny Depp. He's always been this, like, caricature kind of thing. And I think he totally becomes a caricature of himself, much like Tim Burton in my mind. Mm. But Johnny Depp, first of all, we should mention that we're recording this when his trial has been settled and he won, right? Yes. And uh, just because, you know, someone else was worse doesn't mean you're great. No. I want to put that out there because I also should say I know very little about people's personal lives. I don't care. Yeah, famous people, you just, you don't care. I don't care about it. I want to see what they're doing on the screen. But from being on the screen, Johnny Depp went from being maybe my favorite living actor when he was doing uh, Crybaby, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Dead Man, Donnie Brasco, that mid or early to mid 90s really the 90s johnny depp right i loved him i didn't come into it a little bit until later because i was quite young Mm -hmm. but i did see his movies when i was a kid and i did really like them and then i got to experience this was maybe the first person in my lifetime that i got to experience just like oh i don't like you anymore and reaching the point of like, you've done more garbage than you've done good stuff. And I guess I can't say you're one of my favorite actors anymore. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. But with all of the trial stuff recently, I, again, don't follow it. But I just, from an outsider's perspective, it seems real strange that people were so, so gleeful to have, like, a woman be proved wrong in her accusations. And there seemed to be a lot of like, see, this is what women do. And I was like, no, 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 no. She's bad. I get that. Yeah. It was a trial. Cool. Yeah. That's what happened. I don't know about it. But if she's a dick, she's a dick. And she did some very bad things from my understanding. Right. But also he kind of did too. I know he's the victim in that certain circumstance, but it kind of, from my understanding, what a lot of people's reactions have been is like he is just a hero and a saint now, yeah. and uh, women always be lying. Yeah, and I'm like, that's not what our that's takeaway not what should, we should be. be. No, our takeaway should be like, hey, I guess the justice system worked for once. So good. Yeah, yeah. This isn't like how we measure people from now on. Yeah, which is like it's rough. That's not great. <laughs> that is how people are approaching it. Um. I did follow a lot of the trial, and I think that the outcome is warranted and good, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that all women either shouldn't be believed or are evil or, like, that kind of thing. I think there's just a lot of people who think, like, who actually believe most people who make claims of sexual assault especially are lying. Yes. I think people think that, and you people are wrong. It is very rare. This was one of those rare circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. That and she clearly thought that she could get away with it. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't. And a whole bunch of other stuff ended up coming out about how she was really abusive. And uh, she kind of got what was coming to her. Yeah. All right. So let's say we're not going to talk about anything <laughs> nope, more. No. <laughs> but I will talk about Johnny Depp and how I think he is a douchebag in his films because that's something i know about okay he started off as in the 90s he was like oh i'm a heartthrob but i'm like the reluctant heartthrob and it worked it was a it was a great bit it was like him and he's kind of like shy 
but good looking. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, I could be your leading man, but I'm not going to be. I'm going to take these interesting roles. I'm going to be Edward Scissorhands (laughs) and I'm going to do... Have you seen Benny and June? No. What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Ed Wood? Those were all through the mid to early 90s and they're all very good. He does Dead Man when he could have been making bigger movies for sure. Uh, Donnie Brasco, I think he was fantastic in. Uh, Fear and Loathing comes out in 98. There is garbage mixed in there, but right. these are all great movies. I love Chocolat from 2000. That was a good movie. Maybe that was my first experience of Johnny Depp. And he continues to be good. Like, I thought Finding Neverland in 2004 was very good. Although I don't think the remake of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was necessary, I didn't think it was bad. Mm-hmm. Very surprisingly. I thought the tipping point of Burton remakes comes after that, and I thought... Um, Chocolate Factory was fine. It's not as good as the original. He played Willy Wonka. And it was an interesting performance. Mm -hmm. Didn't love it. I didn't hate it. He He was trying something. Yeah. And it was fun. Because Willy Wonka is such a like crazy character to begin with. Yeah. And then he like overacted it and made it something. You're going up against a legend, right? You're not going to be Gene Wilder. Exactly. No one can be. No. So he did something and that was fun. Yeah. But then we get into Pirates of the Caribbean, and somehow that was what he got nominated for Best Actor for, which is still boggles my mind. <laughs> Not any of those other performances that I just talked about. Yeah. It's, it's Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, and he makes a bunch of those. He makes Alice in Wonderland. He makes The Tourist, which I think he also got nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor. Really? And The Tourist... If nothing else, the tourist convinces you that awards are garbage because he got nominated for that. And it convinced me, well, I already knew, but it convinced me that capitalism doesn't work because that is a hugely successful movie and is such a piece of garbage. Oh, right. Angelina Jolie in it. So bad. I do remember this being bad. Then he does Dark Shadows. He thinks it's cool to play Tonto in The Lone Ranger. I think he does Into the Woods, Mordecai. Another Alice movie, the Fantastic Beast stuff. Oh, right. He's Grindelwald. Or was. Was. And it's just a, a bunch of garbage to me. And I get like those are successful movies. So again, I'm clearly wrong because people love those movies. Yeah. But I just remember this actor from things like Ed Wood. Right. And that's what he was. He was an actor. He was different in every role. If you saw Crybaby and Edward Scissorhands... And Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you'd be impressed that one man has that range. Yeah. And then if you look at all of his other stuff, you're like, oh, yeah, he has like a cool dark makeup that's slightly different in each one. That's what he does. He's being Johnny Depp. It's true. And he came from this like being an outsider to being a caricature of what rich people think an outsider is. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I'm going to wear lots of rings and lots of scarves. I'm so rock and roll. I have my shitty band called Hollywood Vampires. (laughs) If it's not like on point enough of like, this is what I am. And I'm like a vampire in Hollywood. No, we get it. You're everything about your persona screams that you think you are different from everyone else when you are the biggest beneficiary of being exactly what people want you to be. Right. That's what I think of Johnny now. Okay. Sorry, I got a little, a little intense there because I really loved him. And then I got so sad of where his career went. Um, He's currently filming a TV miniseries called Puffins Impossible. 
Well, I'm, I'm on board for whatever Ooh, this is. It looks very cute. He plays Johnny Puff. <laughs> oh, okay. See, now I'm in. Yeah. Um, he's also in a um, like a period piece about Jean de Berry, who was a mistress of one of the kings of France. So he plays a king of France, which I think would be really interesting to see. But this movie takes place when, for me, both of these people are at their peak right. and doing great things. And people did not like it. Because <laughs> this movie didn't do well, which also makes me think uh, no one's going to listen to this episode because we've been talking for like a half hour and we haven't even talked about the movie yet. So let's get going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we can talk a little bit about the art of filmmaking, both as represented on screen mm-hmm. in the movie and as represented on screen by the movie okay (laughs) because this movie i think looks beautiful what do you think about it i think it was a very nicely done film i think it could have been very cool in color (laughs) because this is like a time when there was color to film in so i think do you mean 94 or 50 whatever 50 whatever okay was there color there was. It was just prohibitively expensive for the most part. That's why everything Ed Wood would have done would have been so in black, been black and white. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. But yeah, so I I think lots of the things in this movie are very beautiful in black and white. Like mm-hmm. um, like Juliet Landau and Sarah Jessica Parker both have like really great coloring and faces for being yeah. in black and white, which I thought was really amazing. Um, and uh, I thought that... Th- the cast of characters didn't lose anything from being in black and white. I prefer this to be in black and white. I can't even picture it in color, but I think it's because I I know Bela Lugosi. I've seen the Dracula movies, and I was like, I can't picture him in color. Right? Would he have brown hair? That seems weird. I don't even know. Weird. It would just seem odd to me. Or to see Ed Wood, like, is he wearing a pink Angora sweater? I assumed it was pink for some reason. I think there's a poster where it's in color. I thought it was cream. Oh. I I don't know why. I imagined it as cream. Yeah. And those movies seem, like Vampyra. I couldn't see her in color. No. That would be so strange. She was also one of those characters that is just very black and white. That's true. Just to begin with. It was strange when we see her not in character and her hair is blonde. Yes. That was odd to me. Yeah. And she just has like normal makeup, not her like vampire eyebrows. Although they're still pretty. They're still pretty out there. (laughs) But she she looks a little bit less costumey. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I really liked the black and white, but it is funny because you're going to make a movie about a a terrible filmmaker. Uh Uh-huh. But... Do you lean into that and make your movie look like one of his? Because you're doing it in black and white, so people might think that that's where he's going. But we talk about Orson Welles in this movie a lot. And if you're not familiar, I think all we need to know is a a very well-regarded good filmmaker, in my mind. Right. And this movie looks much more like an Orson Welles film than Mm -hmm. it does a Ed Wood film. Right. And that's a good thing, because (laughs) Ed Wood movies look bad. They look cheap. Because they were bad and cheap. Bad and cheap. Yeah, that trailer you showed me last episode, I was like, is this real? Like, is this a real movie? Because, yikes. I think I also have to say right now, because a lot of movies, they'll be like, oh, yeah, but his stuff wasn't really that bad. It was played up as bad as a joke. Mm -hmm. His movies are terrible. (laughs) And I watch bad movies, and I like a lot of them, and I think they're fun to watch. Many of his are 
unwatchable. Like, Glenner Glenda is just a loose collection of scenes and monologues and stock footage of Buffalo. It doesn't make any sense, and it's barely a movie. Plan 9 has a plot, but it's it's one thing when things are bad, like cardboard tombstones falling down. Right. That's kind of fun. But Ed Wood also wrote the script for most of these, and he is a terrible writer and doesn't understand how people talk fundamentally. And it shows, and his movies are very hard to watch. They're not good. Um, I, My favorite of his terrible writing is the uh, secretary, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, interacting with Juliet Landau. That- I can't hear you. I said, I know what you said. I just can't hear you. And walking off. Like, and she's what's... like, oh, I get it. Ha ha. See you later. <laughs> like, oh, it was just, it was terrible. I'm going to add in, in the show notes, you can click on a link to see comparisons of the shots from the movie Ed Wood to the real movies that they are from. Oh. And it is identical. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, doesn't say a lot about Ed Wood's filmmaking yeah and i think a part of this movie maybe is about how that doesn't matter yeah this isn't about someone who's like oh i'm the worst but i'm gonna overcome it or someone about how like i wasn't appreciated in my own time i feel like the quality of his work is inconsequential to this movie Hmm. it is about his enthusiasm and his relationships more than anything okay i think i i agree I think. But back to more things about uh, the filmmaking in it. I loved when someone says, like, oh, don't you want to do one more for protection? And he goes, what's to protect? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The idea of doing one take on everything stresses me out. Yeah, I can imagine. And he just puts whatever in. He also didn't shoot anything that he didn't use. He just, everything he shoots is he's going to put in. Well, that's probably why Glenner Glenda is so random. Yeah, well, he just got a bunch of stock footage and was like, yeah, I'll just put it in the movie. This looks cool. I'll put it in the movie. Yeah. He just had a fundamental lack of understanding of how filmmaking works. Yeah. And he was a director. (laughs) And writer. And actor. He does it all. He does it all. Nobody does everything. Just him and Orson Welles. (laughs) I loved the octopus and how they have to like flap the arms around because they don't have the motor. I love how the opening credits of Ed Wood mirror the opening credits for Bride of the Monster. Bride of the Ghoul? What's that one called? Either way, it mirrors like one of uh, those movies with all of the tombstones and everything. And I think like a lot of the talk about filmmaking comes to a head when we have that scene where Ed Wood talks to Orson Welles. Orson Welles played by Vincent D'Onofrio, but clearly dubbed over by Maurice LaMarche. Yeah, you were having trouble with that when we saw it. You were like, that's not his voice. Well, also, I love Maurice LaMarche and all like Futurama fans will be like, hey, that's Maurice LaMarche. Oh. Or, or if you know um, Pinky and the Brain, he's the voice of the brain, which is uh, an Orson Welles impression. That's what the brain is. Oh. So he's just doing the brain's voice, but it's over top of Vincent D'Onofrio, which is very strange. That's odd. That's an odd choice. It is. And it doesn't. It wasn't done well. No. I think that was one of the few things. I was like, well, that was just poorly done. He Bad sounds like... I didn't even have as much issue with the sync as much as LaMarche was clearly in a studio. And it just sounds like he's talking right into your ears mm-hmm. while everyone else is on a set. It just sounds right. different. It's a big booming... In that scene, I love that they are equals. And... 
Orson Welles, for some people, is the greatest filmmaker of all time. Uh-huh. And Edward, for many people, is the worst filmmaker of all time. <laughs> and they speak about the process of filmmaking and their passion on completely equal terms. Huh. And I love that about this movie because that's what this movie is about. It's and and that's what Ed, the character of Edward, I don't know mm-hmm. as much about his real life, but Edward, as we see in this movie, that's what he's about. Mm-hmm. He is equal opportunity for everyone. He doesn't care who you are. He's just this completely non-judgmental person. And I feel like Tim Burton is doing that same thing in this. Right. His movies are terrible. But this m- movie never seems to condemn him or make fun of him. It's coming at it from he's a passionate filmmaker and that's all that matters. So when you have the scene about him and uh, Orson Welles talking about it and talking about how the studio system's getting both of them down and how they just want to do their yeah. art and about how visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dream? And that's just what Ed needs to kind of reinvigorate himself and go and uh, finish that picture. I thought that was fun, like fun timing in the movie was that he'd like all but given up. And then he comes back after talking to Orson Welles and is like, Kate, let's do this. Yeah. And that was nice. That was like meeting your hero and it went well. It was exactly what he needed. And that is clearly fictitious, Mm -hmm. that, uh, that meeting. But... It's so symbolic of uh, what we think of Edward, or at least what Tim Burton thinks of Edward, about someone who is passionate and the quality kind of doesn't matter. And his struggle as a as a filmmaker is different than your typical artist's struggle, I feel, feel like, because there is that m- monetary thing about he needs to make the money uh-huh. and he's underappreciated. And that's all typical, but there's also this struggle of staying true to his own self and i feel like that's not on the surface as much because johnny depp's performance is so uh, i don't want to say flat but constantly optimistic right right he doesn't have many moments so there's that one maybe when he's in the bar right before he meets orson wells and there was one earlier in the movie when He's saying like, you know what? Maybe I just don't got it. <laughs> and he has those moments, but they don't last, right? He's never really down on what he's doing. He just pops right back up he each does. time. He's like fearlessly optimistic. Yeah, let's talk about Ed's character and uh, Johnny Depp's performance. I like it quite a bit. And I, the only thing, a reason I'm saying I don't love it is because we're going to talk about another performance that I think is better from no, this movie. Yeah. But I love that he is playing this man with more enthusiasm than talent. And he just is smiling somewhat maniacally throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think of Johnny Depp's performance? Um, Not knowing anything about Ed Wood, I obviously can't compare what I know of Ed Wood and Johnny Depp's performance, but... I found him really engaging and it was kind of fun to follow along in his like, like I said, fearless optimism and like complete like ignoring of any consequences or bad things that might happen. And I liked that um, because I feel like if you're pursuing a career in the arts, you kind of have to have that Mm -hmm. because it is a lot of no's or under budget or like disappointment not getting the part that kind of thing so i feel like this was the 
a portrayal of how you kind of have to be if you're pursuing show business. And I think I liked that because it was um, a kind of best case scenario for someone who's kind of failing up. Yeah, because I know I keep saying like, oh, he was a bad filmmaker. And he was. Mm -hmm. But there's another thing that's really important is he made films. Yeah. He got it done. Yeah. I've had one feature length film made. And it killed me. I hated it. I never wrote another one after that. It was the worst. Mm, I just sad. Yeah, I guess. But also it makes you realize like that's not for me because it's not just like, oh, do you have the talent to do this? Do you have the perseverance to go through that process? Because merging art and business is it's not a good mix. But that's what the film industry is. It's an industry, right? So it is half people who are full of a enthusiasm, a vision of artistic integrity, of all sorts of ideas. And then the other half, or probably closer to 95%, is people who are like, how do we monetize this? How do we make money off this? And it's going through a team of producers, mm-hmm. of business people, of funders. And that is who gets the final say in a lot of things. And art, like if you just think about it, I we all know movies are a business. But if you think about it, like that's such a backwards way to make art because film is a business more than it is an art form a lot of the time. Right. And some people can uh, work within that. Some people can work against it and overcome. Uh, me, it killed me. It crushed me. I, yeah. I don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I can't. Uh, I, I hated it. I hated someone going like, well, let's change this to this person because this will make more money. This will sell. If we do this, we need more love scenes in it. We need to have a sex scene. We can't have a sad ending. And it's like, but that's, that's not the same movie. And they're like, yeah, you're right. It's not. <laughs> It's a movie that will actually get made. Right. It's so to have someone who goes through that process and gets like just knocked down constantly and just bounces back up. So while I may not appreciate a lot of his artistic choices, the perseverance of someone like Ed Wood is is amazing. And I think that is more important to this film, the film of Ed Wood, than uh, than his actual abilities are. Right. Oh, okay. Cool. You're so good at, like, summarizing. (laughs) Thank you. It's when I just start um, going off in my own head and talking about nonsense. Sometimes it works. (laughs) (laughs) It works more often than when I talk about nonsense. I don't know. You have to listen to the podcast. I think your nonsense is pretty solid. (laughs) Solid nonsense. I know your Samantha is not a listener of the podcast. I hate listening to my own voice. (laughs) I really do. You do such a good job with it, but I just like... The the feature film I made, I have a role in it as well. I've only seen it once. Yeah. I just really... It makes me anxious to listen to my own voice. I get that. You get over it. You have to get over it when you edit, though. True. I've gotten over it now. Yeah. I I don't like the sound of my own voice, but I hear it so much. I like the sound of your voice. (laughs) That's all that matters, Because we're married, (laughs) and I'm going to listen to your voice for decades. Yay. And so will all of you out there, right? Exactly. Yes. All right. Back to Ed Wood. Oh, yeah. We're here about a movie. (laughs) (laughs) I love that the first introduction we get to him, 
is him saying the lines. It's when he's doing that play. It's like a war play. Right. And I forgot about the war play, actually. Yeah. The actors on stage are like just monotone and not doing a great job. But he has so much more enthusiasm while he is mouthing the lines along with him. And that's such a great setup for who this character is. Full of enthusiasm, garbage product. Yeah. <laughs> And for a movie that is about the 50s and filmed in the 90s, this movie is pretty progressive towards uh, both the cross-dressing characters and the trans characters as well. Because you, the 90s, you see representations in movies in the 90s and it, they're it's not, not good. great. You no. see representations in movies now and it's not great. Very true. But this one... I, I think was because that is kind of a, a a big part of this movie is just that everyone is kind of unapologetically themselves and that bravery and enthusiasm is what carries it, carries mm. this movie a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, I loved his just fearless enthusiasm. It was wild to see someone with that much like bravery and enthusiasm in a role where all he was getting was rejection. And it's such a fine line too, because I think we all know people in our lives who are far more confident than they should be. Yeah. But he is, but there's something so charming and maybe innocent in his confidence because it's not just that he thinks his work has been great. He's like, well, next time will be better. Like when he says, oh, the worst picture I've ever seen, huh? Well, my next one will be better. <laughs> and he believes it. I truly believe that he believes that. Yes, yeah. But he's not someone who's braggadocious about like, oh, my movies are actually great. He's just fine with everything, with all of those compromises he has to make, with people not getting through the door on a take, with <laughs> people being stuck in graves. It's not like he's saying, no, this is what greatness is. He's just kind of fine with it. Yeah. And just like wants to make movies for the sake of making movies. Because he enjoys it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. You definitely see a difference between trying to find the funds, Edward, and like mid-production Edward. Yeah, and I love when after that Orson Welles talk, that was kind of a turning point in that mm -hmm. one because he was being pushed further and further by, it was like a, a church that was uh, oh, right, funding that, was that funding one. It. And yeah. they get baptized for it. And uh, he was being pushed to the edge and they were saying things when he was wearing his uh, Angora sweater and his wig and everything. And he just goes, that's it. And that's like as angry as he gets. And it was yeah. like, kind of cute also when yeah, he gets angry because yeah, yeah. he's still Edward. Then he gets that confidence from Orson Welles, comes back and like really takes control of the scene. Yeah. Like. And I think, like you mentioned earlier, that's one of the other main themes is that kind of the two faces of someone and what you present. And really, Ed's journey, although it kind of happens earlier, the pacing of this movie is strange in a lot of ways. Yeah. The fact that we do kind of three movies and where Bella dies, where he has this kind of um, epiphany with Orson Welles, mm -hmm. when he comes out as a cross-dresser, all of those things happen at different times than you would expect them to in your kind of standard Hollywood movie. Yeah. But I guess it's, if the main story of this movie isn't the filmmaking, then it makes more sense. 
Like, if it's more about his journey or the friendships he makes, then I think a lot of those plot points make sense more. Mm. If you look at this as a movie about Ed Wood's career, then maybe less so. Because he's making movies already at the beginning. We don't get to see him, like, starting from nothing and then making it. But he doesn't make it to the top ever. No. So <laughs> I guess that's another reason why that uh, that classic formula doesn't work here. Uh, but like you were saying earlier, the the two faces that people present yeah. and how that's resolved. That's a really interesting thing as well. Yeah. I think he... Like, it starts out with almost three faces, right? Because he's hiding the fact that he likes to wear women's clothing. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of becomes a part of... His other two faces, I guess, if this is making this metaphor really, like, muddy and weird. What are the other two, then, in your mind? So, like, trying to get the money oh, right. guy, like, pre-production, and then, like, directing and filming. Well, I think you could say that the directing and filming and the cross-dressing self are the true him. And that's, like, yes. one together, perhaps. Yeah. So that's maybe the, the two. Yeah. Because that's when he gets to be himself. And this, you know, that's kind of what the movie's about, is like having this man find the ability to be himself and how he can do that. And it mm-hmm. seems like the two things that make him his truest self are dressing how he wants and making movies. Yeah. And when he gets to do them together, like those few times when he's uh, right before Sarah Jessica Parker freaks out and uh, yells at him. About like, you people are freaks. These movies are garbage. Right. That whole scene. Because he is dressed how he likes, but he's also found his, um, he's found his community. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like a community of people who are cross-dressers. It's a community of people who are passionate about film. There are people who are trans as well. And there are people who are cross-dressers as well. But it is more than that. Yes. It's just people who are perhaps unafraid to be themselves. Maybe that's what his community is. Yeah. And the more we talk on this uh, podcast and how often that idea comes up, it seems like I pick a lot of movies about people creating their own communities. It seems mm-hmm. like so many things I pick are the main protagonist is um, outside of uh, society for one reason or another, and then they are able to find and build a community that works for them. Yeah. And this is one another one of those. Exactly. And like found family. Yeah. We revisit that a lot in yeah. our podcast as and well. And it's definitely in this one. Yeah. And I love that the last two movies of mine, at least, have been those 50s movies. And each one has been about that, about someone who doesn't fit into that society. Because 50s America is probably the peak of an idealized, normal society. Mm-hmm. And of course, normal is set by the people who are who are in the majority. Right. And the movies that we have picked in Iron Giant, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and now Ed Wood, they are all about people who are outside of this, like one of the most insular modern cultures we've had that had the most dis- strict distinctions of what normal is what good is what right and wrong are mm-hmm. and this is also the 50s that people love to uh, more conservative people clearly to love to talk about how that's when we were at our best that's when oh we didn't have these issues then and the reality of course is that those issues were always there it's just those people never had a voice right and these last three movies are giving voices to those people yeah and more than I, I know when we started, the through line was 1950s sci-fi, yeah. but it is all 1950s 
counterculture as well yeah in, in all of these movies and that's really interesting to see from these three different points of view mm. see what i did there i, I taught taught us all a little lesson i love a lesson <laughs> i think you could easily argue that this movie is more about breaking down and going against the trends of 1950s america as it is about making shitty movies <laughs> <laughs> i agree and I like that this biography is quite different from a lot of other ones I've seen because you usually get a few different ones, especially when it's about an artist. You get the movie that is a tortured genius who is always struggling and always beaten down and his brilliance isn't recognized in his time. Or you get someone who goes against all odds and succeeds and it's this glorious uplifting story at the end. And that's not this movie because that's not Ed Wood. Mm -hmm. You could say it's probably closer to the one of a guy getting beaten down constantly and appreciated after, but he was never really appreciated after. He was, if anything, kind of mocked more afterwards. And he doesn't have, well, maybe he goes through those same struggles, but he doesn't struggle. He's confident in what he's going to do. He doesn't have a lot of moments of self-doubt. A couple, but that's not really what the movie's about. Yeah. And how this movie is made kind of seems like Ed feels like he's in that movie where he succeeds at the end. Right. We all know, and the other characters in this movie know, like, that's not what this movie is. This is not a huge success story. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows it, maybe except for Ed, because he has the moment when he's watching Plan 9, he says, like, this is it. This is the one I'm going to be remembered for. And in a different movie, if Burton didn't shoot this so lovingly, that would be a heartbreaking line. Because we know, like, this is, it is in a way because everyone's going to make fun of this movie. Right. We know that. But because Tim Burton has had so much respect for Ed Wood and uh, Johnny Depp's performance as well, he has that uh, just unfallible enthusiasm that it doesn't seem sad because you're happy that he feels that right he feels like this is the one and who are we to to disagree we factually know that's not true but i still feel good for him i don't feel bad that he's wrong yeah because i feel like how tim burton made this movie how he shot it especially he gives Ed Wood, the movie, the biopic that Ed Wood feels he's in, even if that's not what the content is around him. It is not mm -hmm. a success story, but Ed feels like it is, and Tim Burton gives it to him. And it's it's nice because this movie gives him a bit of a happy ending because that's not the end of his life, yeah. and he does not have a happy ending. And we get to see it in the the little epilogue where it writes up everything that happened because yes, him yeah. and his wife who was played by uh, Patricia Arquette, they just drink themselves to death is what the where the real life story goes. That's really sad. Yeah, it is. But that's not where we go here because this movie is a, is a celebration mm -hmm. of this artist, not a condemnation. Yeah. That's so sad. It is. Anytime, like, I don't know how much we can, like, talk about a, a addiction and how sad it is. But, yeah, anytime someone is just like... That's it, and they give up, and they just drink or do whatever till they die. It's mm -hmm. I, it's it's rough. It's yeah. very rough. And um, speaking of super, super sad and addiction stories, let's move on to talk about Martin Landau yeah. as Bella Lugosi. 
Yeah, I only knew Bella Lugosi as Dracula. Mm-hmm. Kind of seems like everyone only knew him as Dracula. For the most part. He does, I've seen a few of his other movies, but of course nothing is is Dracula. Exactly. So Although I... he plays Dracula in lots of other <laughs> movies too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's like his pigeonhole. Monsters in general, because like um, Boris Karloff and um, like Lon Chaney and some others, because the universal monsters, like that was like the thing. Mm-hmm. We look at this movie and sci-fi and horror are silly and not well respected. The universal monsters movie universe, that was like, that's the MCU of the time. It was right. highly respected, even more so maybe because people would appreciate the craft of the acting a lot more than I mm-hmm. think we look for in our, our Marvel movies currently. <laughs> as long as it's really flashy and there's lots of explosions. Yeah. And I'm I'm not even just here to shit on Marvel movies. There, A lot of them are pretty good. But it was different in how it was regarded, but it kind of held a similar position of how big of a deal it was, maybe. Right. It was the draw. In a, in for a lot of years, those movie those monster movies, hmm. and Bela Lugosi, biggest of them all. I know people would argue Karloff, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I did like Karloff's not fit to smell my shit. What does he say? <laughs> There's like a moment, yeah, where he gets really mad because someone mentioned Frankenstein. Yeah, and yeah, he could have been Frankenstein. He turned it down. Yeah, he saw. He thought it was beneath him. That's wild. Yeah, he could have been all the Universal monsters. He could have. They wanted him to be. Yeah. Just like now when we give multiple superhero roles to the same actors. The Hollywood curses. Yeah, well, there's other people. Yeah. You can't there's be multiple characters in the same universe. No, That's too much. No. It's, that also makes it not make sense. Yeah. Especially for like the hardcore like universe people. It's like, no, he's also this. That doesn't make sense. He's also Human Torch. But we don't talk about Human Torch. And also Human Torch has been played by a bunch of people. <laughs> But um, back to this, I know a lot of people probably don't have the context, so for a real short version, Bela Lugosi was a very big deal. The reason vampire stock like this was because of Bela Lugosi. He's not doing a vampire voice. The vampire voice is him. And I showed you a picture of Martin Lando normally and yeah. how he looks as Bela Lugosi, and he looks more like Bela Lugosi than Martin Lando. Yes. <laughs> And if you watch that little clip I'll put up, you can see that his performance, all we need to say is it was perfect. Yeah. He was Bella Lugosi. He's amazing as Bella. It was, yeah, it was amazing to watch. Um, someone who's that skilled of an actor really take over someone's essence. And the funny thing is, Martin Landau is a better actor than Bella Lugosi. <laughs> yeah. Because... Uh, it's hard to act as someone acting at something. That yeah. just seems so difficult. And I always feel like it's overrated when people do impressions and that is what they win their award for because it's you can see that person. You're just like doing that. Yeah. But I do think that Martin Lando, who received uh, an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor yes. for this role, um, did deserve it because... It's not just a great Bela Lugosi impression, Mm -hmm. but he does those moments of vulnerability that we've never seen Bela do. Like, he doesn't do that in any of his films, right? right? We get to see him as a sad and broken man, and that's all all Lando. 
but he's able to do it while also channeling Bella Lugosi. And I think yeah. that's what makes it super impressive. Oh, yeah, that definitely. That performance deserved an award. Like, obviously not knowing much about Bella Lugosi and knowing that Martin Lando was not, like, an old, old man when he... He was old, but not, yeah, not, 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 not like, decrepit. Yeah, I just think that that, he did such a good job of taking over that character physically, too. Yeah, yeah, very true. A lot of his movements and everything were very spot on for what you'd imagine, like, a 90-year-old? I'm not sure how old he was supposed to be at this point. I thought younger, but I don't know. He seemed 90. He was e- Either way, though, he had been a morphine and other thing addict for many years, so he was essentially 90. Yeah, he was <laughs> aged beyond his years. Yes. Yeah. So I think it was so sad to learn about Bela Lugosi through this lens, too, because mm-hmm. he was a morphine addict. Um, what did they say? With a Demerol chaser? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was, like, really the only thing keeping him going. Yeah. But when um, we have scenes like the octopus one where he has to get into the water and all sorts of things, yes, he absolutely is a drug addict and that keeps him going. But I think that Landau's performance does show that he also loves making films. He, when he's on the street and he's doing monologues just for people, like he actually did that. He loved being Dracula. He loved the recognition. He loved the celebrity. He loved the respect that came from that. And in his small way, I think Ed was able to give him some of that back. Right. Even if it's not because Frankenstein, he felt that was beneath him. So Mm -hmm. you'd think he would think that laying in this bog with a a big silly octopus is beneath him. (laughs) Yeah. But he still has this love of, of the craft and... Even if the movie itself isn't the thing that is making him uh, feel that those accolades, that recognition again, Ed Wood is. Mm -hmm. Ed is just so constantly positive and so constantly telling him how great he is. And it's not like he's um, putting on a front and saying like, oh, yeah, you're great, just to get him going. Ed believes that, too. And he gives that enthusiasm to Bella. Not that Bella also gains enthusiasm, but he feeds off of Ed's enthusiasm, and that's what's able to keep him going. He's feeding from that recognition that Ed gives him. And that's kind of like the greatest gift that he could have given him. That's what he needed most. I mean, we all need that, that like, hype man. Yeah. (laughs) To be like, you're so great! Good job! (laughs) And his tragedy kind of balances Ed's optimism throughout Mm -hmm. this movie. This is one of the few Tim Burton movies, especially of this time, that's not scored by Danny Elfman. And I'd forgotten that. But about 10 minutes in, I was like, this doesn't sound quite like he sounds different. And it wasn't Danny Elfman. Mm. But one thing I love, I wish I remembered the the composer's name. But either way, he included uh, Swan Lake for Bella. Mm-hmm. Because Swan Lake was used in those Dracula movies. Oh, was it? So it's like a nice little uh, a nice little throwback. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I know Swan Lake really well, um, just from ballet. So it was nice to hear that. And I think it did kind of match some of the scenes that they used it in. Because there was a, a sadness to the, yeah. the parts they used. Yeah. And that fit him really well. Like those scenes where he gets checked in to um like the rehab center and he's just screaming in that room yeah you forget 
because everything else is treated almost lightly a lot yeah. in this movie when something like that happens it's it's shocking and brutal and then you are like thrown back into reality because ed's mm-hmm. enthusiasm has been protecting us from actual reality for yeah. most of this movie and then when he's not there and bella's left to himself you get to see how how far he's fallen yeah and it's rough it is rough but that friendship is really what keeps both of them going a lot of the time and I think when you really look at it, it is that friendship more than just the filmmaking process that is the driving force of this movie. Because Ed like literally needs to make movies for Bella to live because Bella yes. is broke and destitute and he needs this money. Right. But also Bella needs just Ed to live in the yes. very literal sense because he's always driving over there to, to, to make save sure him, he's okay. Make yeah. him goulash. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to make goulash. But... Also, just uh, like we were talking about before that, that reinforcement, that yeah. positivity, that's what he needed in his life. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true friendship. It really was. And I think you could look at it very pessimistically and say like, well, they needed each other financially. Like Ed needed a name to get uh, his movies made. Mm-hmm. Bella needed the money from the movies. And there is that. But I don't for a moment believe how they are portrayed in this movie, that there wasn't a lot more to it. Yeah. And of course, there's inaccuracies in in everything. And there are some in this. Like, for instance, from my understanding, the first wife didn't have a big issue with the cross-dressing. She didn't uh, yell at everyone like that. Uh, Bella did remarry before his death, but we just kind of glossed over like an entire person. Yeah. But wouldn't have fit this movie as well. But from all accounts, they were great friends. Hmm. That's good, though. I'm glad because like... It didn't seem like in this story, I mean, you said that he was married, but uh, it seemed like Bella didn't have a lot in his life. Yeah. That was good. The other inaccuracy that gets brought up most often is that Bella Lugosi didn't swear. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. His son, and apparently he was a great father too, even throughout his addiction and stuff. Oh, wow. But uh, his son said like, no, he never swore. It just wasn't a thing. And I don't think he hated Karloff that much, but it's so much fun to have that bit <laughs> You kind of have to have that, like, to play up. I um, loved it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think the friendship of them is most apparent. There's that line where Ed is feeling, he doesn't feel shameful about who he is. Mm-hmm. But there is a moment where he's saying, like, you shouldn't have to wander around in the muck at 4 a.m. And he feels bad, I think. I feel like he does have some shame there. But then Bella responds with, um, there's not a lot of people I do it for. Yeah. And that's just, I think that encapsulates everything and that's what made it so beautiful. It's not just this business and that is driving a lot of yeah. it. Their friendship existed on its own as well. And that was one of the the most fun things to watch. And then that extends into that kind of that cast of characters yes. you were talking about. And this whole troop of misfits is 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 a family, and they're going around, and they're getting more members, and they're becoming stronger as they do that. Because, like how Tim Burton is showing us this movie through Ed's Edward's eyes a lot of the time, and that shelters us from some of the things like like the addiction. We do get to see the harshness of it here and there, but it's not ever present because we are kind of seeing things through through Ed Wood's eyes. The character of Ed Wood also then shelters all of those people around him. 
because he is so accepting of whoever you are, whatever skill set you have. If you participate, if you love what you are doing, he is going to be your biggest booster. He's going to give you whatever you need. And he's going to try. Well, he doesn't have a lot of resources, but he's going to try. He's going to give you everything he has. Right. And he isn't going to judge you. And he will just respect and embrace everyone who is willing to be a part of this process. And that's what so many people need, whether it's a vampire who was super judgmental of what Ed was doing. But when she is out of work, he doesn't judge her. He doesn't throw anything in his face. He just says, yeah, come do this. You don't want to talk? Sure, you don't have to talk. You want to whatever you need. Yeah. Um, Bunny Breckenridge is a real fun character. I, I loved like, him. Uh, that yeah, was, Bill uh, Murray. Played by Bill Murray, of course. And he is a fun story in himself. He's like this wealthy socialite who was trying to get a gender affirmation surgery and Ed doesn't blink at this. He's just like, oh, okay, because he's just so accepting yeah. of everyone. But uh, Bunny's character, he never actually did get it because, you know, different times, the technology is not where it is. That would be a terrifying thing oh, to go. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Like, like, you'd have to really be brave in order to, like, possibly just lose your life. Yeah, and uh, or be damaged in in so many ways. Yeah, but he did try to get it a couple of times, and there's like crazy stories about what actually happened. Like on in Mexico, like the story he tells where they get robbed or something. I guess that all happened. Yeah, and then there was like a mariachi band with him. Yeah, who <laughs> saved him? So he's like, oh, I now you're coming with me to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, that's uh, another really fun character who Ed just passes no judgment on and is unconditionally accepting of yeah you see the difference between um like ed and dolores because they're sitting at the boxing match and ed is like nodding along hearing bunny tell him that he's going to mexico and dolores is like could you keep your voice down please yeah this like stadium full of people and so you kind of see how Ed is just like, he doesn't really let anything phase him, mm-hmm. which is like a very admirable trait, but He's not one that- He's just so loving of anyone, yeah. of, of everyone, really, yeah. it seems like. It's not really a trait that works well in the real world. Right. But he's built himself a little world where that kind of works for him. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's how it worked in the real world. Although it didn't make him a great director or anything, it did give him this this support group who are going to go along with these yeah. crazy ideas that he has, right? And then right after that, uh, when he meets Tor Johnson, the wrestler, mm-hmm. who's uh, George the Animal Steel. <laughs> Is that his name? I think so. He says, like, oh, I'm not good looking enough to be in uh, in movies. And he just says, oh, I believe you're quite handsome. <laughs> Or he gives uh, Loretta King, who is Juliet Landau, who I'm a very big Juliet Landau fan. I love her as Drusilla. It's one of my favorite Buffy characters. It was an adjustment to see her speaking in just like an American accent. And like not being all crazy. Yeah. Like she was so happy and bubbly and like. Her voice didn't seem to fit her because I was so used to the other, to Drusilla. Her like kind of spacey English accent. Yeah. And also, that is uh, Martin Landau's daughter. Yeah, so it's nice to see them together. And she is someone who, like, just got off the bus and wants to make it in Hollywood. And Ed's like, okay, here you go. Here's your chance. 
there's a line in it that uh, they say, Eddie's the only fella in town who doesn't cast judgment on people. And one of my favorite lines from Johnny Depp is like, that's right. If I did, I wouldn't have any friends. Yeah. And that's so, and that's, that sums it up perfectly. That's hilarious. And I love it. Yeah. So I think that's the real driving force. Mm -hmm. First, the friendship between him and Bella. And then this idea of this accepting, enthusiastic man Mm -hmm. who is able to create a community for himself to, to succeed to some extent. I know he's not like a big time uh, making the best movies or as many or as big of movies as he would like, but there is a success because he's doing what he loves with people he loves. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a better way to look at this movie, Mm -hmm. less about a biopic of a director and his career and more about the story of a man or a group of people who are able to find what they need in in others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I love Edward. Oh, that's nice. It's a good movie. And it's also, it's funny. It it's is funny. It's so much funnier than I remembered. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think it, it has some, like, really charming moments mm-hmm. that make you, like, happy about the world, which is sometimes hard to find. <laughs> Yeah, especially if you said uh, watching a movie about a washed up drug addict and a cross dresser in 1950s. Yeah. And you'd think, oh, this is going to be brutal. But it's not. It's it's joyful. Yeah, it is joyful. Oh, I like it. But you don't love it. I like it. I okay, don't I'll take it. it. I love it. <laughs> it's a 8 out of 10 for me. 7? 6.5. 6.5? Seven. You gave like step up movies sixes. Okay. This is better than step up. It is better than step up. Okay, I'll take that. I'm not going to rate anything. Better than step up. I'll take it. <laughs> so our second sponsor of the episode is Taproot Publishing and uh, the Taproot Spotlight, a service that helps businesses and organizations pay attention to the people they serve. Taproot tells you the news about the people and the companies that are important to you. You can use that information internally to keep everyone on the same page or share it with the world in your newsletter, on your website, and on your social media channels. Paying attention pays dividends. Find out more at taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight. That's taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. But don't worry, because we'll be back in a week. Yay. (laughs) So join us again next week, where we will each have a quick spoiler-free review of something that we like in our things of the week. And then Sam will tell us what we're watching for the big watch the week after. I bet you can't guess. I can't. I hope it's Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's not Plan 9 from Outer Space. Also, I should just say, if anyone wants to watch Ed Wood's movies, most of them are free on YouTube, and a lot of them are on Amazon in several different versions as well. So it's easy to find Ed Wood's movies. They're not great, but they're (laughs) worth checking out to kind of see, experience them. They're an experience. Okay, well, that sounds fun. That sounds like a fun, bad movie night. No, they're not that fun. They're no room. The Room is a fun, bad movie. And one point, we will do a double feature of The Room and The Disaster Artist, and we will reference this episode on Edwin a lot. Excellent. Okay, we'll see you next week, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.